please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. When you find that, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. What a privilege we have to come each week and worship God and to sing praises to Him and now to, to hear His Word. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18, uh, 23, excuse me. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. And we pray, trusting you, that you would speak to us again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around people for any length of time, you know that crowds can be fickle. Everybody wants to be where the action is, where good things are happening. It's, it's human nature. If a sports team is doing well, fans will come out to see them. But if the offense stalls, if the quarterback throws a few picks, you get booed. If you're good, people will flock to hear you sing or play or speak until the next big thing hits town. And that guy at Costco who's making frozen fruit smoothies and and hot soup out of that same machine, he knows how to gather a crowd too. See, he's giving away free samples. And they're going to listen to him until he gives them what they waited for. And some will stay and buy and some will, will leave. Those who work skillfully will, as Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, not stand before obscure men. They will stand before kings. They will have an audience with the great but if you rub them the wrong way, forget it. Do certain things and you'll gather a crowd. Do other things, they might leave. Now Jesus always drew a crowd. Wherever he was, he became the center of attention. Sometimes they were his allies, other times they were his enemies. But Jesus always drew a crowd. Now it is understandable that crowds followed Jesus. Wherever he went, he became central, but he didn't manipulate things to get the attention, as some of us may want to do. His greatness drew people to him. His centrality, Christ's centrality, is unavoidable. It's very understandable, because Jesus is the central figure in history. He is uh, the central figure of Scripture. Now today, we're looking at a summary of Jesus' ministry to people, what he did, and how they responded. So first, let's look at what Jesus did, at his ministry. Now at this point in time, Jesus was focusing his efforts in the region of Galilee. And it was around the same time that he, had, that he attended the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee with his mom and his disciples. And in verse 23, we read that Jesus was going about 
throughout all Galilee. He was connecting with people. He was engaged. He came to earth for people. It makes sense that he would engage with people. He came to meet the greatest human need, and he was going out among the people to meet their physical and spiritual needs. Now, in verse 23, we see three primary activities in Jesus' ministry. He was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. Teaching, preaching, healing. First of all, he was teaching. We see that he was teaching in the synagogues, Jewish houses of local worship. It's the, these sprang up after the Babylonian captivity. Now, in Jesus' day, the rule was this, to have one synagogue wherever 10 educated men or students of the law lived. Large towns often had more than one. Jerusalem had over 500. As a local house of worship, the synagogue was focused on two things, prayer and the study of the scriptures, teaching. Now, one Jerusalem synagogue from A.D. 70 had this inscription, Theodotus built the synagogue for the reading of the law and for the teaching of the commandments. That was the purpose. Now, Jesus' practice of going into synagogues and teaching was very consistent with the cultural practice of the day. Any adult male Jew was allowed to read the scriptures and exhort the people in the synagogue. Jesus did the same thing in Nazareth that he did in Galilee. In Luke chapter 4, we see a situation, a, a situation that summarizes again Jesus' ministry, but it, it gives a certain instance. You know, he had returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. In Luke 4, 15, he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. They loved what he was doing. In verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, the custom of Jesus was to go into the synagogue and read. As was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So what did he read? Well, they, they, they offered him the, the book of Isaiah the prophet. He opened the book, and it says he found the place where it was written, and he's basically reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Closes the book and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, the prophet's talking about me. Jesus was explaining God's truth to the people in the synagogues on their turf. He instructed people in God's way. He taught. Now, the second thing he did is he preached. He was preaching. He was proclaiming. He was announcing good news. He was de declaring significant truth about God, about God's rule. In the midst of that, he was calling for action. He was saying things like, repent, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. He was expecting the people to respond. Jesus' preaching expects a, a response. When Jesus is preaching, you've got to listen because 
you're going to want to respond. When I'm preaching, that's between you and God. But when Jesus is preaching, it calls and expects a response. Now, a lot of people are confused about teaching and preaching. They don't know which is which. Um, Both occurred in the ministry of Jesus. Preaching happened more in the open air settings where the crowds would come. Teaching would happen more in structured environments like in the synagogue where most of those present had a religious orientation. But both occurred in Jesus' ministry. Both occurred in the apostles' ministry. In Acts chapter 4, many times in Acts we, we see preaching and teaching. But I'll give you a couple. Acts chapter 4 and verse 2. This is um, what got Peter and John arrested, <laughs> what they were doing here. Uh, they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees came. And it says, verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, preaching the resurrection from the dead. They were teaching in the pre- and they were preaching. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says that every day, in the temple, and from house to house, all over the place, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were doing two different things. They were teaching him as the Christ and preaching him as the Christ. Go to the very end of the book of, uh, of Acts. Acts chapter 28. What did Paul do? Stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, verse 30, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of the God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered, preaching and teaching, doing both. In the, in, also in the book of Acts, when Paul reasons or debates or persuades, uh, it's talking about him teaching. Now, in 1 Timothy, he links preaching and teaching together in his writings to Timothy as well. Uh, it's a qualification for a pastor or an elder to have the ability to teach. Uh, preaching and teaching happen in Jesus' life. They happen in the apostles' ministry. They also occur in the church today. We preach and we teach. Now, some may say, well, you know, he's more of a preacher than a teacher, or he's more of a teacher than a preacher. And most of the time, that's based on opinion of what you think one or the other is, right? But what's the difference? What is the difference between preaching and teaching? Let me take a few moments and explain. They're similar, but they're different. They're not the same. Dr. Brett Selby had some good things to say about the difference between preaching and teaching. He says preaching involves description, describing things. Teaching involves explaining things, explanation. The word for preaching in the Greek is keruso. It means to announce, to make known, uh, to proclaim aloud. Say something out loud. The word for teaching is didasko. It means to inform or instruct or to demonstrate. In teaching, there's actually the idea of a relationship and an interaction between the teacher and the student. It's not a, uh, a, a dry thing. It is actually interactive. Preaching involves pictures and stories. Teaching involves ideas and concepts. A preacher might draw upon draw upon images in the scriptures uh, to illustrate what's going on, to paint a picture in the minds of the hearers 
But a teacher is going to deal with concepts, the great truths contained in the Bible. Preaching involves a passion for the heart, speaking to the heart. Teaching involves insight for the mind. Preachers uh, speak to the heart to move listeners to action, to get them to do something. Teachers bring insights to the mind to get them to think. Now, a teacher hopes to affect learners emotionally. A preacher wants them to think, but the process unfolds differently. We must be careful when we're talking about preaching and teaching, how we distinguish between the two and not build a wall between them. As if you can only do preaching, you can only do teaching. They're two different things. They're similar, but they're not the same. Preaching is invitational. You invite. uh, Teaching is instructional. Preaching asks you to do something right away in response to what you heard. Teaching takes a longer view of things, takes a, a, a longer perspective of things, and often concludes without seeking a response, leaves it open-ended. Preaching motivates us to act. Teaching shows us how to act. One tells us what, the other tells us how. And there's a need for both. There's a need for both preaching and teaching. Jesus did both. I think back in my life, and I've benefited greatly over the years from the preaching and teaching ministries of many godly men who week after week in settings small and large faithfully and accurately handled the word of God and did what God called them to do. I praise God for preaching and teaching ministries. I praise God for the privilege to to preach and to teach whatever you think I'm doing up here. But in any situation, you're going to do both. There'll be preaching and teaching intermingled. Hopefully this sermon has elements of both. Because I want you to do something. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, though. But I also want you to think. I want you to, to wrestle with the biblical text and think about what it means for your life and not give you all the answers. Well, Jesus preached... And he taught. And in addition to that, he healed. He healed people. Think back to the Old Testament for a moment. The Old Testament gave Jews hope that there would be a deliverer who would come and would heal them and would bless them. It's all through the Old Testament. And Christ's miracles of healing showed that he was that promised one. And when he was healing, he was demonstrating God's authority. He was teaching with authority. But he was also demonstrating God's authority through through healings. He was fulfilling God's promise to overthrow every force that harassed God's people, that came against God's people and oppressed them. Some of you this morning are seeking healing from God. Emotional, physical, relational. What Jesus says here was healing Every kind of disease, verse 23, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. He was going out wherever they lived, going to them and healing them. Bringing them out of of illness and disease into health and wholeness. He was restoring health to people in need. People were, were in essence saying, physician, heal me, heal me. Or please, 
heal my friend or my relative. And he was doing it. They were needy, they were dependent, and Jesus made them whole. Jesus reversed for a while the effects of the curse, the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. Gave them a foretaste of heaven when there will be no sickness, there will be no disease, there will be no sin. See, they suffered from all sorts of, of, um, of problems, and Jesus met them right where they lived. Jesus went to their town and, and did for them what they could not do for themselves. Christ healing the multitudes, the crowds, was significant in several ways. First of all, his healing miracles confirmed his message. Confirmed that he would be the one who would take away their, their sins and their infirmities. In John chapter 14, in verse 11, Jesus is comforting his disciples. And he talks to them about believing, having faith in him. Here's what he says in 1411. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. See what I'm doing? You see, Jesus' ministry combined both speaking and, and acting. He was teaching, he was preaching, but he was also um, doing observable things that showed who he was. His healing miracles confirmed the message that he was preaching and teaching. Second thing they did is they showed he truly was the Messiah prophecy spoke about. That promised Messiah that would open the eyes of the blind. That would make the, the deaf hear. And the lame walk. It also proved, his healing miracles proved, that the kingdom of God in some sense was happening right then. Was arriving right then. That it had both present and future elements. There was implications in both realms. And that the idea of God's rule had to do with the idea of blessings for the body as well as the soul. Pointing to the day when all who came to faith in Christ, by grace through faith, would experience the full reality of their position in Christ. As it says in Revelation. In Revelation 21. We long for that day. We long for, for what we read in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 6. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's why we can experience the benefits that we will in heaven, because God will be the centerpiece. And it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. And there will be no longer any mourning. And there will be no longer any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In Revelation 22, verse 1, you see the river, the water of life, 
clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, he being the centerpiece, he being the focus. And it says that on either side of the river, the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. That's what we're hoping for. And while we're here on earth, we seek healing. I experienced a miraculous healing four years ago. One night I was uh, having extreme pains. I couldn't stand it. So I drove myself to the hospital. And the emergency room was full. It was going to be hours before they could see me. And so I drove myself to another hospital. I laid on a bed all night in extreme agonizing pain. The most pain I've ever been in my whole life. Early the next morning they did an emergency operation on me. They took out my appendix. That's what it was. But God healed me. He, he chose to use doctors and medicine, but he brought me back to health. Now, some of you have experienced miraculous healings that didn't even take a doctor, didn't even take medicine. Jesus does both kinds and everything in between. But healing comes from God. Jesus is the great physician, and he may choose to heal you. Either way, though, either way, if you know Jesus... One day, you will be fully restored to health. One day, you will be fully restored to wholeness, physically and emotionally and spiritually, in every way, when you go to be with him or he comes back, whichever comes first. But Jesus preached, he he taught, he healed. Let's talk about healing for a couple more minutes. Some people restore cars. Some people restore furniture and other things. God is in the people restoring business. God sees potential in broken things. Jesus, when he was going about in those cities, he saw people that he had made, that he loves, that he cares for, and he had compassion upon them and and did for them what they could not do for themselves. If you think about it, every healing here on earth is temporary. Every person who even got raised from the dead, Lazarus died at some point in the future. After he was raised from the dead, he died a second time. He went to be with Jesus. He died physically. But God sees the potential in broken things. One day we will be fully healed. One day we will be fully freed. But we've got to be careful not to seek the benefits more than the benefactor, the one who gives. Not the gift as much as the giver. We've got to be careful not to seek Healing more than Jesus. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 118 verse 8 is the middle verse of the Bible. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to trust in man. You see, fearing man brings a snare. Fearing man, trusting in man brings slavery. But finding refuge in Jesus leads to freedom. It sets you free. You might say, well, God, though, has let me down. That that God has not come through. I expected this to happen, and it didn't happen, so I'm going to write God off. It didn't work. You see, God is still in control. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what we think. (laughs) That's a good thing. We think some weird things sometimes, don't we? But God is still in control, no matter how we feel about the situation. And he wants to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. 
The burden that you now carry is the burden he wants to lift off your shoulders. God's still in control. And Jesus is the answer for every human issue. He taught, he preached, he healed. And he's the answer to every human issue, but sometimes we go to get our issues fixed rather than to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't we? See, above all, Jesus is the answer to every person's need to worship. And sometimes we go to Jesus to get. We get it all out of, out of uh, perspective. And that's what many in the crowd did. Well, they were getting healed right and left, so they were loving Jesus. He's the best. We love him. Think about what that crowd said a little bit later, <laughs> a couple years down the road. You know, the other day I was, uh, I was people watching. I was waiting for some people that I was going to meet, and I was sitting in a, a large crowds were walking past me and found myself just thinking about who these people were that I did not recognize because I did not know. It made me think about how God made people and how every person matters to him and how everybody is someone to somebody and how you can be in a room full of strangers feeling alone and then someone you know walks in the room and, and it, things change. You no longer feel alone. You have a connection, uh, a friendly face, someone who who knows you, you recognize one another, and it's, it's huge, isn't it? I know your faces. They're beautiful faces, by the way, I, and I look at them, I get the privilege of looking at them every week for 40 minutes or to an hour, you know, and, and, I, and I study your faces, and I, and, and, but I, I, then you get to, you, I know you too. Some of you I don't know very well. Others of you I know very well. But God knows every single person, cares about them deeply, and Jesus was going out to the people. He was going to meet them, to do what he came to earth to do. Now, he was going all the way to the cross, but he went and met their needs. He knew them. He knew their needs. He knew their pain. And he was going to take their shame all the way to the cross. But he also knew how they were going to respond to what he was doing for them. You know, first we see what Jesus did, and he's teaching and preaching and healing. But let's look at what the crowd did in response. The crowd's response and how people responded to what Jesus did. In verse 24, it says, the news about Jesus spread all over the place. Throughout all Syria. Place northeast of Galilee. Immediately northeast of Galilee. And uh, it, the, the good news travels fast, doesn't it? What do they do with the news? They acted quickly. It's like a sail on flat screens at, at Best Buy. You can't get there fast enough. But the cool thing is this. They didn't just go for themselves. They seemed, some of them seemed to be going for the sake of what others might benefit. They basically helped other people. They were bringing to Jesus sick people. That's one of the things they were doing. They're bringing sick people to Jesus. Notice they were brought. That someone brought, helped them come to Jesus. I mean, they couldn't walk. Someone had to carry them. 
They couldn't see, so somebody had to lead them. Now, it says that all were, who were ill with various diseases, all, all kinds, just a sampling here, uh, diseases and pains, demon-possessed people, epileptics, it literally means moonstruck, people thought they were uh, crazy, I guess, uh, paralytic, people who were paralyzed, and, and he healed them. People who had various things going on, mental, physical, emotional, um, and Jesus healed them. He made them well. So that's, you know, he starts healing people, and people hear about it, the crowd's going to come. They want help. What else do they do? They followed. It says in verse 25, large crowds followed him from Galilee. And the Decapolis, they came from all over, north, south, east, west, Syria again, immediately northeast of Galilee, and um, uh, the Decapolis, uh, it was a coalition of ten cities that was south of Galilee. Um, they got Jerusalem and Judea, and beyond the Jordan, the area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They came from all directions to see Jesus. But they also followed for all sorts of reasons. They, they, from all directions and for all reasons. <laughs> um, Jesus knew their reasons. He knew who was following out of selfishness. He knew who wouldn't last. He knew who was only temporary. Well, I want you to notice what crowds meant to Jesus. What the crowds meant to Jesus. People were very important to Jesus, but crowds did not impress him. Now, people are attracted to Jesus. Who he is and what he does. Sometimes more what he does than who he is. And he knew what was in man's heart. Every man's heart. And crowds will follow because those they follow do what they want to have done and say what they want to have said. But the crowds that follow Jesus would one day demand his death. They would say, physician, heal yourself. See how quickly they turned on him. They went from cheers to booze. They went from praising to murderous threats. They went from hosannas to crucify him. They went from praise Jesus to give us Barabbas. So what did Jesus do? You know, he withdrew from the crowds. You see him do that. In fact, right away. Matthew 5, verse 1. Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. You see him various times throughout the Gospels uh, withdrawing from the crowds. Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start that in January. That message would weed out who was only there for what they could get. What he would say next would separate the wheat from the weeds, the good from the bad, the, the true worshipers from the users. Now let's talk about how we can understand this, these three verses, how these things affect our daily life are following Jesus in daily life, in relationship to God as well as ministry to others. See, as a teacher, Jesus was acting as a rabbi, which means teacher. As a preacher, he was acting as a prophet, speaking the words of God. And as a healer, he was acting as a physician. He's the great physician, right? But I think it's in how we understand Jesus as a rabbi, Jesus being our teacher, that we can truly grasp the idea 
of what it means to follow him for the right reasons on a daily basis. Um, about glorifying God for who he is rather than just getting our needs met. Because we know it's about him, not us, but how quickly we shift to being all about us. So first, what about in your relationship with God um, as you walk with Jesus? The ramification is you must willingly submit to Jesus' authority in every area of life. Bible teacher Doug Greenwald makes some great observations about being a first century disciple. In those days, a person would follow a rabbi. They would submit to their rabbi's authority in every area of their life. Unlike the rabbis of Jesus' time, uh, righteousness to Jesus was a matter of the heart, not of following a code of behavior. And a disciple of Jesus totally surrenders to him and his way of seeing and doing things. There is this willing desire to conform all aspects of his or her life to the authoritative lordship of Christ. Crowds were following Jesus. Now, if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to willingly submit to his authority in every area of life. And walking with Jesus also means being willing to wrestle with real-life questions and letting the word of God Um, inform and shape your views. Greenwald also talks about how observant Jews had memorized the Hebrew scriptures in prep for their bar mitzvah since uh, at age 13. The issue wasn't what God said. They were biblically literate. There's a big problem today in America about people being biblically illiterate, not even knowing what the Bible says. That wasn't the Jews' problem. They knew what it said. Their question, their issue was, what did it mean and how was it to be lived out in daily life? Well, they would go to their rabbi and the rabbi would tell them exactly how that was, what that would be. The rabbi was the filter or the grid through which every issue of life flowed. They were their supreme authority. The disciple would wrestle with real life issues and what scripture had to say about them, but some, after sometimes weeks of debate and dialogue, the rabbi would give his interpretation, and it was final. That, that interpretation was binding on the life of the disciple for the rest of his life, for the rest of his life on earth. Think about that. All debate ceased at that point when the rabbi would give his interpretation. See, Jesus is to be the grid through which all of our life's issues flow. But the question is, are we willing to submit our entire life, every aspect of that life, to the authority of Jesus and God's word? If you do, you won't be going to Jesus for the wrong reasons, and you'll connect with others in significant ways. So let's talk about what it means to, in relating to others as we follow Jesus this way. If you teach or preach, seek a balance of the elements of preaching and teaching. Strive to reach the heart as well as the mind. See, Christianity is for rational, logical, thinking people. And we are got, called to love God with all our heart. We are also called to love God with all of our mind. So as you interact with people, maybe you say, well, I'm not called to preach or teach. Well, are you going to share the gospel? Are you going to tell your story about how you came to know Jesus? Well, then seek to have uh, painting word pictures 
for people and also asking good questions. Give them a picture of what it means. And then ask them some questions. Show them, but also tell them. Probe a bit with some thought-provoking questions. Also, speak from your experience and draw out their story. Tell them what God did in your life. Tell them what God's doing in your life. What he's taught you. What you're learning. You know, if, if you only describe places you've never been, you're more like a travel agent. You want to be more like a tour guide. Show them places you've been. Where's God taking you? What has he done? And the other thing we can do is tell the gospel truth in our words and show the gospel truth in our lives, in our deeds. Because we need to not only share the gospel, but live it. To live the truth of the gospel in observable ways, showing in, in, in observable fashion how the gospel changes lives. And the last thing I want to say is this. Point people to Jesus as the answer to everything. Point people to Jesus as the answer to everything. He is the answer to every problem and every issue known to mankind. He is the teacher who explains and reveals God to us. He is the preacher who calls us to stop trying to get ourselves to heaven and simply trust his finished work on the cross. He's the healer who was wounded so that we might be healed. Bring them to the only one who can meet their deepest needs. Not so they can become a user, but so they can become a worshiper. One who is restored in relationship to the image of the one who made them. See, Jesus draws a crowd. What part of the crowd are you? Jesus draws a crowd. Where do you fit in in that crowd? What's your response to Jesus' overwhelming greatness? Are you a worshiper? Or a user. Let's pray. Lord God, we don't want to be users. We want to be worshipers. And Lord, we know that you are the one. You are the only one we can go to. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us, enable us, lead us to go to you for the right reasons, to follow you and your authority. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.